From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Chris Beam. I'm Candace Watt-Smith. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, we are talking with Brad Vivian, uh, making his second appearance on the show. Uh, he is back to talk with us about his brand new book, Campus Misinformation, The Real Threat to Free Speech in American Higher Education. And this book and the conversation with Brad touch on several things, several themes that we've explored on the shows in various ways before. I'm thinking about our episode earlier this year with uh, Michael Barabay and Jennifer Ruth about academic freedom. We've certainly talked about the notion of higher education's role in democracy. Uh, so Brad kind of touches on all these things, but he also brings in this idea of moral panics and manufactured controversies, which he argues is very much what's at stake in you know, discussions about the, quote, problems on college campuses or the notion of what's happening on college campuses. You know, one of the things I think that Brad touches on and what you're speaking to is this kind of these ideas of partial truths and moral panics. You know, it sounds right. It feels right to kind of have this suspicion about whatever it is that, you know, people do at universities and colleges. Increasingly, there is this kind of side eye toward well-educated elites and the extent to which we should believe and give, you know, uh, share faith in scientists, for example. So, you know, some of, I think, what Brad talks about helps us to understand this phenomenon that people, we have over time shared so many so-called controversies on college campuses. And so Brad does, I think, a really good job of kind of pinpointing where this controversy gets manufactured and what its meaning, uh, what the ramifications are for how we think about colleges and universities, um, how we what we think about its role in democracy. And these have, like, the ramifications are real insofar as state legislators and congressional members put forth bills that can limit funding, resources, um, or even the speech of people who work at colleges and universities. The other thing is that, you know, we're talking about the partisanization, and I've talked about this before, the partisanization of American life, where there is no aspect of our culture that is not torn asunder by red and blue. And in this case, it's absolutely true. You know, I just was, I was looking for polls when I, when I, when, you know, when we started this and there's one from Pew 2018, I believe, where it says, you know, do you believe that faculty professors uh, smuggle in their own agenda um, to students? Um, 17%, I believe, of Democrats believe that 80%, 79% of Republicans believe it. It's just a dramatic uh, split, right? And, you know, we can talk about why that is and how that's manifested and, and you know, how it is kind of of a piece with the, with this, you know, kind of uh, populist dimension of, of the Republican Party, the dominant po po uh, dimension of the party. But it's also just, you know, it's just the case that there are <laughs> there is no like, there is no nonpartisan place to stand here, even though 
most of what higher education is about is not directed towards some partisan end, right? I mean, you know, critical thinking, learning to, you know, uh, examine your presuppositions, thinking clearly, writing well. These are not partisan agendas at all. They're not, there's nothing partisan about them. But yet in this context, you simply cannot, you can't talk that way. Um, there simply is assumed to be a partisan agenda, especially upon, upon obviously, um, those on the right. So I, I don't disagree. On its surface, a poll like that will reveal that partisan polarization is eating up, you know, is, has, has a place in every domain of American life. But um, one of the things that I appreciate about Brad's work is that he notes that there are 5,000 universities, colleges across the country. And I, I, I wonder if, you know, when people were asked that question by Pew, if what they were thinking about is Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Columbia, Duke, uh, whatever. <laughs> But if we ask them about liberty, if we ask them about Pensacola Christian College, mm-hmm. if we ask them about BYU, if we ask them about uh, some, you know, some number of HBCUs or, you know, if if they were primed to think about a wider array of colleges and universities and community colleges, if they would have given that same response. So I don't disagree that. Um, there is a, a partisan division around the way people evaluate colleges and universities. But I also wonder if that has to do with the kind of uh, dominant image and the dominant you know, colleges and universities that come to people's mind when they make that um, choice. And I think that like one of the things that Brad kind of uh, breaks down and highlights is that if we start to think about the many kinds of universities and the many kinds of colleges. The other thing that's worth pointing out is that most Americans do not go to college. And so they don't have a notion of what goes on there. And and so when you tell them, tell them these, these stories, you know, um, episodic, not not um, not representative uh, stories. They they don't know that that's false. I mean, they don't know that that's not what's really going on. And so, um, so I think it is. It does kind of fit, right? But I but I, all, my only point about the media was that it's 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 a similar narrative where there is a notion that that forms in these people's <laughs> that is that is directed by these, by um, certain media outlets to create a narrative, an idea, a frame by which you should understand everything. And, and there is no nuance in that present, presentation. Yeah, well, there's clearly a lot to talk about here in this book. I think it also hits all of us maybe in a particular way, and I think many of our listeners as well, because we all work on college campuses, so we kind of see these narratives play out in the media and in our own lives. And so I talked about some of that with Brad as well. Let's go now to the interview. Brad Vivian, welcome back to Democracy Works. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. 
So your research and your, your scholarship focuses on issues of, of public memory and, and these sorts of things. We had you on the show several years ago talking about Charlottesville and Confederate monuments. Mm-hmm. And this project in some ways seems like a, a, a departure from that. I, I'm wondering what, what made you want to maybe turn the focus inward, so to speak, to look at, at issues of speech and, and rhetoric around that on, on college campuses. It is a bit of a departure. And in a sense, I was involved a few years ago in some administrative positions, say uh, the Center for Democratic Deliberation here, and as a director of undergraduate studies in my home department, Communication Arts and Sciences at Penn State. My service in those roles coincided with a temporal focus in this book, 2017, 2018, these are real high points of a lot of what I describe as manufactured controversy about free speech and intellectual diversity on college campuses. And I am all for healthy, rigorous debates on those topics, and I think there's many things to say from many different informed perspectives, and I think there's much work to be done in universities on those topics. But a lot of times the descriptions of, say, for example, why universities allegedly were no longer uh, good places for free speech and intellectual diversity, the descriptions of college campuses and universities just didn't match up with what I'd experienced talking to other students, talking to faculty, working in different universities at different locations for about 20, 25 years at that point. And so I just saw a contribution here to try and use my background in rhetoric and communication and argument and debate to have a more constructive conversation. Mm-hmm. And so you you open your book, Campus Misinformation, with this this phrase, what's happening on college campuses, which was seen in, you know, many headlines and, um, you know, speeches given by intellectuals like Jonathan Haidt, John McWhorter. I'm sure we'll, we'll talk more about them later. But can you just take us back to kind of the origin of, of that question and, and how that came to be the particular frame? So I think there's two basic responses to that. One is that that kind of question became very fashionable in the media, and it became a way for, this is one of the chapters in the book, is for op-ed writers and people who wanted to promote themselves as public intellectuals, which is great. Those are great ways to make a living if one chooses. But they became very marketable. Um, Stories about, quote-unquote, what's happening on college campuses acquired a kind of meme fashion. Um, So in many ways, I describe some of those stories, a good portion of them, as misinformation. Because the way misinformation operates is it takes things that are technically true and builds up more elaborate and potentially deceptive narratives about them. And it gets recycled through, as I say in the introduction, figures from different walks of life, political social orientations, People are susceptible to misinformation because it seems to confirm existing prejudices about groups of people or institutions. And then when you delve into the facts, in this case of how a university actually operates, or the fact that colleges and universities, the nearly 5,000 of them in the U.S., can be very different from one another in terms of how they operate, even if they look like one another. So this became a very marketable thing above and beyond universities. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm all for criticism of institutions, but I think we need to base this on student bodies and faculty bodies and administrators having an equal voice. But very briefly, the second reason is that 
the thing I'm concerned about is oftentimes exceedingly negative arguments about higher education and universities are connected to anti-democratic or pro-authoritarian movements. And for my taste, there's too much of a resemblance between specific things that get said about universities now in the U.S. and some of those anti-university movements abroad, whether now or in the past. Let's put a pin in that for a second. I want to come back to, you know, you mentioned that that misinformation often has has truthful or or factual elements at its core. In this this example of the, you know, what's happening on college campuses, remind us what are some of those kernels of truth at this case? Great question. Let me give you two classic examples that I think people even if they're casual followers of certain media reports would be familiar with. The two examples are information about quote-unquote trigger warnings and also mobs or shutdowns of controversial speakers on campuses. So especially in the 2010s and then 20, early 2020s, there are people on college campuses who in classroom spaces put trigger warnings on their syllabi. And occasionally, sometimes, and this happened very recently, there are controversies over speakers mm-hmm. on campuses. Um, 2017 and 18 were the high point of those things because there was a lot of very intentional information, and my argument is a lot of misinformation about those things. So sometimes people do use trigger warnings, uh, meaning, uh, in my understanding, I've never used them, but instructors will say, you know, there are things that could activate post-traumatic stress symptoms for certain students in this reading material or whatnot. In my understanding, they're actually statistically rare or not terribly common. It's more of a cliche as opposed to something that's uh, mandated. Universities and colleges in general have very few official policies about saying you need a trigger warning on your syllabus. That's sort of just not a thing. This is just a personal anecdote, but in about a quarter of a century of teaching and research in three different institutions of higher education, I think I've only encountered one person who ever used them. And it's a very myopic focus, too, because if you're going to focus on sort of this idea that trigger warnings are um, shutting down viewpoints in the classroom, we're going to have to focus on a lot of different things as well. How that syllabus is written in other parts of it, uh, whether or not somebody says, I have a trigger warning policy, then do they ever bring it up again? Uh, Or is this something that they actually, what would it mean to mandate that? It's very vague, actually, if you begin to ask questions and not terribly common. The other one is this idea of controversial shutdowns and so forth. A lot of the episodes in terms of misinformation, again, yes, there have been controversial episodes, but oftentimes these are intentionally manufactured conflicts where outside groups will try and host or get onto campus and create events where other extremist groups are likely to show up. And you create a a whole fracas and an ugly incident and violence. One of the most famous is Berkeley in 2017, uh, a a quote-unquote controversial speaker, was invited, and there were protests which led to all kinds of violence within the city. My understanding is, based on reporting, no faculty or students at Berkeley University were cited for any, arrested, cited for violence or anything of that nature. What happened is a bunch of opposing extremists protesters showed up. And uh, these two groups like to go at one another, and university campuses are vulnerable for that reason. And also, on any given day where you 
can cite a, a sort of incident like this on college campuses, you have dozens, if not hundreds, of university classrooms and speaking events that go off without a hitch. What these are are events where people are intentionally trying to create ugly conflicts. Right, and then that gets picked up in this this media uh, ecosystem. You call it a, a viewpoint diversity echo chamber of, of journalists and others, and it kind of goes on from there. Can, can you talk more about how that cycle works? Yes, um, I think in in large respect, once you have people in, say, a prominent op-ed saying very broad things on the basis of pretty slim evidence, and again, I'll refer to, say, controversial speakers as sort of a classic case. So there's a sort of industry now, I try and say in one of my chapters, which is, I, I call it an industry about reporting on certain preconceived notions of what higher education is from a very cynical viewpoint, which is distinct from actually investigative journalism and more rigorous research-based journalism into how higher education actually works. So this is a, a kind of writing and then social media discourse all intersecting with one another that makes exceedingly broad claims. So we have one controversial speaker and the plot line often goes, well, you have protesters show up. Those protesters allegedly are doing something wrong. They're hostile to free speech. They're trying to inhibit a diverse set of viewpoints. What gets elided there is that, again, on university campuses coast to coast today, tomorrow, next week, next month, there will be classrooms which are essentially open where people are free to discuss hundreds and hundreds of different ideas. Uh, by discipline. And then university campuses, again, today, tomorrow, next week, next month, for years, they're going to be regularly hosting all kinds of outside speakers, and those go off without a hitch. So why are we focusing on one incident and then in sort of op-ed discourse and online discourse making it the example of how allegedly institutions of higher education don't welcome diverse viewpoints? A more fact-based, evidence-based interpretation for me is, again, these are intentionally manufactured conflicts designed to create that appearance by groups that don't like the fact that people are openly discussing this kind of idea or that kind of idea on university campuses. Right. I mean, there are, from what I saw on its on its website, about 5,000 members of, of Heterodox Academy, which is a, a, a fraction of the total number of, of faculty and, and instructors across the country. But it's also, it's it's not nothing either. So it seems like, I guess, maybe like we were talking about before with the, you know, the media piece, like there is a kernel of something here that, that people are feeling. And I think they also frame it as as political diversity which i know you you also get to in the book that there's there's a feeling that people who are conservative or libertarian or sometimes they'll describe themselves as classically liberal like don't mm -hmm. have a place in university faculty university governance these types of things so this would be the label of viewpoint diversity, the claim that universities now are not open to a diversity of viewpoints based on the idea that conservative or libertarian viewpoints are not welcomed. So my concern, though, is that is a centrist argument or seemingly centrist argument, which might operate in some potentially prejudicial or discriminatory ways. The viewpoint diversity platform is critical of pro-diversity, pro-inclusion policies. And I try and stipulate, particularly in the concluding chapter of the book, 
pro-diversity and pro-inclusion policies have been welcomed by, say, many Bible-based Christian colleges and universities, military institutes like VMI. One of my former employers, a private Vanderbilt University, which was actually it's controversially pro-segregation late in the game uh, throughout that desegregation period, or at least tacit desegregation. Um, so the viewpoint diversity argument sounds on the surface like a very appealing, I think this explains why it's not nothing, say 5,000 people might want to be aligned with this. It sounds terrific on the surface. So let's make this university community more hospitable to more viewpoints. In my understanding, it's actually an argument against pro-diversity, pro-inclusion policies that many types of institutions, many of them that have sort of social or political conservative leanings or religious ones, have embraced and adopted. And so it's actually an argument to narrow what counts as things we're going to focus on. Uh, and in my understanding, then, just saying, well, is it conservative or liberal, uh, libertarian or progressive that's emphasized in this university campus? That's a very narrow slice of what could count as being part of a healthy community of intellectual diversity. This relates, again, to the sort of situation of different speaking events on a particular campus. Medieval history, Chinese archaeology, uh, North American indigenous culture, uh, history of political campaigns in the U.S. These are all topics that get featured in classrooms, speaking events on university campuses all the time. To boil them down to is that a liberal or a conservative viewpoint is, again, um, a very misleading frame of analysis. And can you talk about the role of nostalgia here too? I think as, as is often the case there, that, that does, you know, play a role or people have some, some vision in their mind, real or, or imagined from the past that they, they think that the entity in this case, the university should return to. Sure. So that connects nicely to your earlier question about the misinformation component. So yes, some people on uh, certain occasions do on their syllabus say, I have a trigger warning warning you about certain kinds of content here. And sometimes there are controversies over incendiary outside speakers on college campuses. Um, in terms of misinformation, however, oftentimes my, again, this is a claim I try and make in the book, these op-eds are so broad, and a lot of the social media discourse is so broad and so primed to react to any little incident along those lines. And I think the nostalgia component comes in when, when a lot of the discourse about these incidents kind of reflect the notion of, well, college used to be this way, and the university used to be this way. Coming back to people even who are professors on college campuses, I think a fair degree of this is about intellectual credibility or bona fides. The idea that, well, when I was associated with this Ivy League institution, uh, we didn't behave this way, and that higher education was supposed to be elite and orderly and so forth. So I think there's an idea of what's going on on college campuses, I emphasize idea, that connects with an idea of how universities allegedly used to be. And that is a way, again, to promote oneself. I came up in this type of institution, and I can speak about it with authority. I try and add certain layers of history, which relates to my training in public memory, though, to maybe reframe 
that impulse toward nostalgia um, to say, well, college campuses used to be this way. And the one example I keep coming back to a few times in the book is James Meredith, uh, who tried to, he was the first black American uh, who was qualified to be enrolled on academic merit after nine years, I believe, of service in the U.S. Air Force uh, at the uh, University of Mississippi. And mobs erupted. So the idea that universities used to sort of have this healthy respect for all kinds of viewpoints and peoples, uh, the desegregation era, that's just one example of an institution where federal troops had to be called in because one black student uh, was accepted for enrollment. There are many other incidents like that, and there are many ways in which viewpoint diversity, if you want to use that phrase, was profoundly barred from all kinds of institutions of higher learning across the U.S. So there's this nostalgic impulse, but I think a more um, substantive historical understanding of how these institutions used to work would actually give good credence to the claim they're much more democratic and open by far than they used to be in recent memory. Still a long way to go, but... Yeah, and it it, it feels like these things are, are distractions that, you know, you spend so much time focusing on this, both from an, an administrative level when these things do happen, um, but also just, as you said, the, you know, the, the media, energy, all of these things that it, it kind of makes it it's easy i think to lose sight of the the mission of the university to uphold democratic values and and all of these things when it all kind of be, gets caught in this this misinformation loop the idea that there there are these broad narratives that get accepted as true about college campuses then they often break down into a binary either or uh, you know do universities prioritize this stereotypical political or social viewpoint or that one as if um, again there are probably many many other kinds of views and perspectives that are common even in a 20-person university classroom that go far beyond those stereotypes, let alone a whole institution. And so, yes, they, uh, in my understanding, they are an intentional distraction to uh, a certain community which would like to detract from um, the democratic work going on in many different spaces. And I try and approach that from two ways in the book. One is to say, I understand there's a kind of cultural politics, which is attacking universities now because universities are supposedly kind of elitist and out of touch. I think there's a, there's a great amount of that that goes on in universities across social and political perspectives. That's my sort of colloquial take. But I also think that is, is misinformation to the extent that if you look at student bodies and who's going to universities these days, um, lots of people from many different socioeconomic classes. Students, one of the reasons we're talking about student debt as a national issue is because so many people are saddled with it because they don't come from privileged and elite backgrounds. Um, there's an appreciable number of students on college campuses today, coast to coast, who suffer from economic uh, insecurity, suffer from hunger, who are caring from uh, caring for ailing family members and so forth. Uh, so the student body is much more democratic in that respect than it used to be not culturally elite, even at traditionally elite institutions. And I think that's something we should appreciate and listen to them and consider their experience as part of um, the process of building more democratic higher education infrastructure. Yeah. 
So the, the First Amendment often comes up, particularly in these these conversations about controversial speakers. You talk in the book about First Amendment hardball. Can you tell us what that is? So First Amendment hardball is me uh, cribbing from a political uh, science concept called constitutional hardball. Constitutional hardball is a phenomenon that we find in certain political situations where people use democratic tools or appeal to democratic values in ways that actually allow them to consolidate power in non-democratic ways. So if you have, for example, very narrow interpretations of some aspect of the Constitution, and you try and claim it for one's own partisan perspective and say, this rule only applies to me now, and it doesn't apply to you, um, that's an example of constitutional hardball. So a lot of these efforts to talk about or make claims about uh, the apparently poor uh, fidelity to First Amendment freedoms on college campuses now, to me, they smack of what I call First Amendment hardball. And the example we've been talking about, about, say, one controversial speaker uh, and a manufactured, a consciously manufactured set of ugly incidents on a campus becomes the prime evidence of why college campuses writ large supposedly don't uphold the First Amendment. That, to me, is the classic plot line that we're dealing with of First Amendment hardball. Extremist speakers, particularly in public universities, publicly funded universities, uh, if, if by the rules of the university and so forth they're invited to speak, that is protected, of course, under the First Amendment. The narratives often go like this, however, about protests to some of those speakers, that because people are protesting, uh, student groups show up, faculty groups show up, and they have large organized protests that they're somehow hostile to free speech. They're using their free speech, too. Uh, protest is a protected First Amendment right. There's no psychological litmus test for using your First Amendment rights. Um, there's no sort of generational group that you have to fit in to protest in a democracy. Um, this excludes violent protest, vigorous uh, nonviolent protest is, is protected every bit as much as different forms of hate, hate speech in public setting or intentionally inciting speech. Um, and so a robust commitment to First Amendment freedoms would recognize that when people of whatever walk of life engage in um, nonviolent protest, that's an important form of the democratic process overall. That's called counter speech. And it's a much better thing to have than the state or institutions setting hard and fast rules for who gets to speak and who doesn't get to speak. Yeah, but as we as we bring things to a close here, Brad, you know, many of our listeners are professors or graduate students or postdocs at institutions across the country. What what do you want them to take from this book? Your your thinking about you know what we've just been talking about here regarding this campus misinformation is absolutely vital to talk about First Amendment freedoms and intellectual diversity and robust open democratic exchanges in higher education. But I'd like to lean into it by calling out some of the sort of misleading assumptions about whether or not institutions today are protecting those sorts of values and priorities in healthy ways. And so um, the effort of the book is to sort of say, there are these forms of misinformation about 
the First Amendment itself, the idea that if one speaker doesn't get to speak unopposed on a university campus, somehow that means that campus, and then higher education writ large is hostile to free speech. Um, let's question those assumptions in order to have a, a much more evidence-based and rigorous discussion about what First Amendment freedoms look like and a healthy um give and take of, of, of those sorts of freedoms. And again, with uh, intellectual diversity, I try and recommend in the back of the book, let's not look at one poll or a narrow set of polls or one database. Um, let's look at as many different types of humanistic, scientific, social scientific evidence as we can muster and listen to as many people on actual university campuses as we can. Because of what you say about everything's recorded, when we have people leading the conversation, who are not at these institutions, who are not at certain events, they're looking at a 20-second video on Twitter and making condemnations of entire systems and institutions, there's a much better way we can have this debate. Yeah. What, one more um, assumption to, to challenge here. The, the, the notion often comes up from Heterodox Academy and, and, and others that there's self-censorship happening among faculty. They don't want to bring up controversial topics in the classroom or there there's some in, in some way limiting what they'll say, how they'll say it, what they'll talk about or not talk about. I think, you know, in part because of these viewpoint diversity concerns, but maybe also out of, you know, for fear of like if a student has their phone out and is going to record them, I guess. Is, is that part of the, the misinformation as well? Or, you know, how do you think about those allegations in this, this bigger picture? Mm -hmm. As I understand that particularly in certain kinds of social scientific research, this phenomenon or this idea of self censorship is a critical thing that people are looking into. I would say that's a human phenomenon. In my observation, it's not a partisan one, or it doesn't break down according to a stereotypical political orientation. Um, there are, there's a lot of data that institutions themselves generate on a daily, weekly, semesterly basis about the openness or not of their learning environments and, and, um, and speaking situations and events and so forth. So I understand that this concern comes from a, an effort to sort of generate the idea that this group isn't talking, this group feels fearful about speaking up and so forth. Universities are great places to look for actually, I think, better quality evidence and data about mm -hmm. that because, for example, um, there are anonymous surveys uh, after classes where students can record their impressions. Universities are much more proactive. There's still a long way to go, particularly for certain traditionally vulnerable and marginalized student groups, I want to be clear. Mm -hmm. But universities have come very far in reaching out to students, many of them, and trying to sort of engage their views and so forth. A lot of leadership on university campuses in terms of faculty, administrator input is a lot more democratic than it used to be. There, too, long way to go. These are big bureaucracies in many respects. So I'd say if you want to address that question, the universities themselves are involved in assessing the openness of their learning environments and whether or not something you could call self-censorship is happening. That's probably better data, not ideal data, but better data as opposed to sort of surveys by outside groups that are just trying to assess that at a distance. Yeah. Right. Well, we will leave it there. Uh, I hope folks will uh, pick up your book to, to learn more about all these areas you go into. And uh, thanks for joining us, Brad. Thank you very much. 
So I think this, this, the way that um, the right has framed this argument, framed this understanding of higher education, is not merely to uh, denigrate the, the role, purpose, um, activities that go on in, in higher education, but also there's a partisan policy agenda behind this, right? That this argument that higher education is indoctrinating students to, th- to become lefties is behind or is um, the, the impetus for them to put forward a whole host of policy initiatives, not just in terms of what a, of what a teacher can say in Florida, in terms of what books are allowed, in terms of what concepts are legitimate, on and on and on. And so it is, it is not merely a, a negative complaint. It is a positive agenda that's born of that negative. Right. So Brad, you know, brings up this kind of idea that First Amendment rights are are under assault. And the kind of dominant narrative is that ultra liberal faculty members are shutting down, you know, conservative students or, you know, conservative faculty members don't feel like they can speak up or, you know, anyone who's kind of outside of the norm of a particular department or school but as you're saying, Chris, is that, yeah, there is a First Amendment issue, and but it's not, it's not just, it's not that, actually. Um, it is uh, when we see, for example, uh, there are several colleagues of mine who were um, part of NCOPES, which is the National Conference of Black Political Scientists, who were under attack uh, by Florida, who these faculty members were expert witnesses in voting rights um, cases against Florida. And um, the legislature was trying to prevent them from being expert witnesses. So this is an attack on First Amendment. Um, Or in Iowa, um, the governor signed a bill that prohibited teaching critical race theory and divisive concepts, not only in K through 12, but also in higher education um, and mandatory and so-called mandatory diversity, equity and inclusion trainings or in Idaho. And this kind of is a a little bit different, but related um, that there was Idaho universities were warning staffers not to refer students to abortion providers or tell them about how to get emergency contraception. This is a First Amendment issue, Um, you know, and then we have the whole kind of book banning thing. Um, So, you know, the, the, the kind of, um, as you mentioned, this kind of the, the, this kind of manufactured controversies are not just to merely denigrate, but to justify constraints, surveillance, and control around um, talk, uh, discussion, topics that some people would rather not have actually made public, part of the public discussion in institutions of higher education. And I think there is a, you know, when we talk about self-censorship, Brad talks about how these polls are, you know, suspect or, or not framed quite correctly. I don't think that's exactly right. I think there is a kind of, um, well, that there are, there's a lack of free expression in the university now that is born of 
oh man, I should have thought better how to say this. That is um, born of from a, a, a left wing perspective that sees uh, that is very concerned about talk as weaponized uh, and words as weapons and as undermining someone's feeling of safety and security. And I think that that has had a negative effect on the um, the quality of not just expression. That's not really my concern. My concern is uh, pedagogy. I think if you undermine or if you put constraints on students to say what they think, then you you don't have as much opportunity to engage those thoughts. You don't have as much opportunity for them to reflect self-critically. You don't give students the opportunity, a sufficient opportunity to hear things that they're not going to like and to respond to those constructively. And so, I mean, that is, that, that's one point in which I think, you know, I'm going to disagree with Brad and, and probably you as well, Candace. I think we really need to think about what the denominator is here. Mm-hmm. that it's easy to kind of point out anecdotes and outliers. And I am curious to know the extent to which these anecdotes and outliers, actually by definition, well, anecdotes are one thing, outliers are, right? By definition, are not representative of the normal course of uh, how we kind of live, uh, you know, do, do our jobs, And so I think that's one of Brad's main points is that across all of the different kinds of places, across the hundreds of classes that occur on campus, across these campuses every day, how many examples of that can we give? The thing that comes to me that I think about when I think about self-censorship is um, I think about people who are nervous about being called out by campus reform or, um, you know, like, uh, you know, professor watch list who are, you know, kind of under the auspices of diversity, you know, viewpoint diversity, professors who are, I think, mostly well-regarded, or at least well-regarded by me, (laughs) um, are actually getting threats. But like I say, I mean, I am am not convinced that there's no there there. I don't think this, I mean, this didn't just fall out of the sky. There were examples and there were, uh, and there is data to show it. Now, is that all maybe fake? Maybe, but I, I'm, I just don't believe that. I think there is something there. Now, that none of that changes or has anything to do with what you're arguing, which is true, that there is this um, aggressive and often even violent reaction on the part of, of, of many directed at people in higher education for no good reason, just because they're saying things that they don't want to hear. I think that's, I think that's, I, I'm just going to completely agree with that. But that, but that's not, that doesn't mean the other side of that is just not worth thinking about. But I mean, it sounds to me like a lot of this is just in your mind, open as an empirical question that we just can't 
uh, argue that we can't, you know, get farther on right now. The problem here, though, is that now we're living with having to explain what exactly it is that we do, that we're having now to spend time trying to fight against legislation that seeks to control and surveil syllabi, reading choices, uh, so on and so forth, because a few people decided that this is an issue that we should talk about, even though the denominator is quite large and the numerator is quite small. I think the the way for higher education to pursue these questions is with a priority on pedagogy. How are we teaching our students to become um, critical thinkers and, and also democratic citizens? And if we're doing that well, and if that is our highest priority, then I, I don't think we have anything to uh, apologize for or to defend. Um, that's our job. So this is, I mean, <laughs> this speaks to um, just how um, helpful Brad's book is, right? It really does just kind of lay out these arguments in a mm-hmm. way that is uh, thoughtful, um, clear, and um, recognizes how, how important they are. So good on him for, for writing it. And um, thanks to Jennifer for the interview. I'm Chris Bean. And I'm Candace Watts-Smith for Democracy Works. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Public Media. Our editors are Michael Klein, Chris Kugler, Mark Stitzer, and Clint Yoder. Editorial review by Emily Reddy. Additional production support from Andy Grant and Christine Allen. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Democracy Works is a member of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about our podcast collective devoted